Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning in, in freedom. Freedom to study your word, freedom to proclaim the eternal truths of your word, freedom to live our life responsibly under your authority. Father, we thank you for this nation that has provided us with these freedoms that ultimately derive from you. And Father, we continue to pray for our nation at this time of increasing threats, of this time of concern, of some sort of terrorist assault before the election or before the inauguration, we pray that you would continue to protect and secure our borders, that you would give wisdom, skill, insight to the leaders, to those in charge of security. Father, we pray that you would just uh, continue to enable this nation to send forth missionaries and to continue to be a place where, despite all of the assaults, all of the attacks against biblical Christianity, where the truth of your word continues to shine forth. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study, that we may come to a greater appreciation of your revelation, that we may uh, gain a greater confidence in the truth of your word, that we may rely more completely on its sufficiency and on its veracity. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We began a study last time on how we can trust the Bible. And I began by looking at a number of things in terms of the background of understanding the nature of the Bible and God's revelation to us. And we looked at the claims that the Bible makes of itself. And one of the things that I focused on was on the uniqueness of the Bible. It is a unique book in history, as it would be, if it is what it claims to be. I pointed out last time that the Bible uniquely claims to be the Word of God, that which is breathed out by God. Now, there are other books, other religious books that claim to be revelatory, that claim to be from God, but there are radical differences between the Bible and these other books. And so today I just want to review some of those attributes that make the Bible unique. 
I've added a few things since last time, and so you can review your notes, add these new things where we run across them before we begin to look at how we evaluate these claims of the Bible to be the Word of God. First of all, the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years, perhaps longer, if Job was written prior to the time of Moses, prior to the Pentateuch. We don't know exactly, but at least from the time of the Pentateuch, written about 1405 B.C. to the end of the New Testament era, which is about 95, 96 A.D., you have a period of a little over 1,500 years. As opposed to other so-called revelatory books, such as the Book of Mormon or the uh, Quran or other so-called books of, of revelation that are used in other religions, these were given in mass in one fell swoop by some sort of angel who gave this uh, original, the original languages of those books or some sort of angelic language, allegedly. And they're not available to us for examination. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years. It was written by over 40 different men from a wide variety of backgrounds and education. For example, Moses was trained from birth to be Pharaoh of Egypt. He had the greatest education of his time, and that was a great education at that time. Those, remember, these were the ancient civilizations that built the pyramids. They had tremendous uh, knowledge in the realm of uh, geometry, trigonometry, mathematics, uh, algebra, uh, architecture, and uh, in the military. Moses was trained in all of those. Joshua was a general who defeated the Canaanites. Samuel was from childhood raised by Eli the high priest, and he was a prophet in Israel. David was first a shepherd, then he became a warrior, then he became a king. He was also a musician and a poet. Uh, Amos, Old Testament prophet, was a herdsman and a fig picker. Isaiah was part of the nobility, the aristocracy in Israel. Uh, Solomon was a king raised in, uh, raised to be king. On the other hand, we have people like Daniel, who was part of the nobility but taken captive, taken hostage to Babylon at the time of the uh, conquest and the first defeat by Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C., and he eventually became the prime minister of the greatest empire of that day in Babylon. So he, too, was had access to one of the greatest educations of his era. Uh, Nehemiah, too, was raised, uh, elevated to a level almost like a prime minister. He's the, called the cupbearer. But the cupbearer was more than simply a food taster for the for Artaxerxes. You know, a food taster would just taste the food to make sure it wasn't poisoned, and if it was, well, that was it. Well, of course, a person who uh, who was in that position, think about it. If you have somebody who's going to be possibly dying for you, taking your poison in your place, they must be someone very trustworthy. So over the period of time before Nehemiah took the position, this office of the cupbearer became a trusted confidant of the, of the uh, king. And so this is more than simply a uh, position of a servant. This is probably the second highest uh, position in the land, the highest bureaucratic position in the government. So he is 
He is not simply a, uh, a servant. In the New Testament, you have Matthew, who was a Jew who worked as a Roman tax collector, and thus he was, um, uh, he, he was rejected by most Jews. Uh, John was a commercial fisherman. Luke was a physician. Paul was trained to be a rabbi. And Peter also was a commercial fisherman. So they come from many different backgrounds, education levels. They functioned in different cultures. For example, Moses had an Egyptian cultural background. Uh, Paul had a uh, uh, Hellenistic background. Luke had a Hellenistic background. Even though Paul was trained to be a rabbi, he was trained in the, in the diaspora. Uh, Peter and John were uh, businessmen. In Israel, you have Daniel raised in Babylon. Nehemiah was clearly raised in Babylon, so they have different cultural backgrounds. Yet, point number three, the Bible presents one unified theme. Now, this is amazing. If you pick any subject, just pick one subject, pick the subject of medicine. Could you go out and collect 15, or collect works by 40 different uh, doctors over a period of 1,500 years and use that information to... Uh, to, to take care of your health today? Of course not. What about in, po- in pol- politics, political theory, or history, or any other discipline? Just pick one discipline, one arena of thought, and take the top literature written over a period of 1,500 years Does it uh, by 40 different authors. Do they all agree with it, one another in every detail? And here you have the Bible. It presents one unified theme. It's written over 1,500 years on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, by men from many different walks of life and three different uh, languages, and yet it has one unified theme. And it covers all, point number four, the Bible covers all of the most controversial topics known to man, yet without contradiction. It talks about family and marriage, talks about education, talks about authority, talks about uh, sexuality, uh, talks about culture, salvation, talks about the future for humanity, and, and there are numerous prophecies in, in many different books, Daniel, Zechariah, Zephaniah, the Psalms, Revelation, Thessalonians, by different authors, different writers, different periods of time. In some cases, they didn't have access to what others were writing. And yet, in all of these different themes, they agree 100%. That doesn't happen in any other realm of of literature. Fifth, the Bible is written in a variety of styles and literary genre. This This shows that the remarkable complexity of not simply the human writers, but also the divine author behind the Scripture. You look at how a man would write something like this, and it would all be the same kind of literature, or at most it might partake of two different types of literature. Yet when we look at the biblical styles, we have poetry, historical narrative, songs. You know, the, the largest book in the Bible is a hymn book, emphasizing the importance of, of song and music, law, uh, didactic instruction. You have personal correspondence, uh, epistles written from one person to another, uh, the epistles to Timothy, Titus, uh, Philemon. You have prophecy, and you have parables. And yet, despite all this, all, the, all of these differences, despite the fact it's written by so many different people over such a long period of time, the unity focuses on 
the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Always, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. The Old Testament looks forward to the coming of Christ. The New Testament reveals His coming and who He is. In the Old Testament, the law provides the foundation for Christ. The historical books provide the preparation for Christ. The poetical books aspire to Christ. The prophecies show an expectation of Christ. In the New Testament, the Gospels record the historical incarnation of Christ. The Acts relate the propagation of Christ, the Gospels. The Epistles uh, give the proper interpretation of His person and work. And in Revelation, we focus on the coming of Christ in the, in the future. Always the same theme, always in perfect harmony. And throughout all the years, throughout all the years, point number seven, the Bible remains the most popular book of all time. I went on the website for the United Bible Society, and in 2003 they record that they distributed over 430 million scriptures. Just last year alone, 430 million scriptures. This included uh, 21.4 million Bibles, the entire Bible. 14.4 million New Testaments. And 15.5 million portions of Scripture where they might hand out just uh, a track with uh, uh, John 3 or some other uh, chapter of Scripture. Uh, in there. And and at this point, the Bible has been translated into more than 2,200 languages, about a third of the world's known 6,500 languages. All the key languages, the most important languages, have a Bible in their languages. The Bible uh, was one of the very first books that was deemed important enough to translate from one language into another, the Septuagint which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, was made about 250 B.C. At the current rate of translation activity, the Wycliffe Bible translators project that within another 15 to 20 years, the Bible should be translated into almost every language. In fact, in this last year, the Bible began to be translated into 500 new languages uh, for the very first time. So the Bible is unique in its popularity. It never goes out of print. It's unique in its, point number eight, the Bible's unique in its preservation. It's unique in its preservation. When we look at the ancient documents, and we'll get into this when we look at the reliability of the Old Testament, the reliability of the New Testament, and uh, the next two or three classes, we'll realize that when we compare uh, documents that we have, manuscripts that uh, were used, for example, the Textus Receptus, the seven or eight Greek manuscripts that were used as the basis for translating the King James Version in the in uh, uh, the early 17th century, and then we compare that with early manuscripts that were discovered in the 19th century, there's very little difference. In fact, there's no difference when it comes to doctrine. Most of the differences have to do with either the insertion of a word or a phrase or the omission of a word or a phrase or grammar, reorganizing the sentence. You may have uh, three 
a list of three things, and they be, may be in one order in one manuscript, another order in another manuscript, and uh, changes in grammar, things of that nature make up about 98% of the differences. But the, what is remarkable is that there's no real substantive change on anything. Nothing affects any doctrine. So John Warwick Montgomery is one of the great uh, scholars in this area, has stated that no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. And when we get to it, we'll show how many ancient documents or copies we have of ancient writers such as Caesar or other writers from uh, the classical period, and we may have only one or two copies that date about the 9th century or 12th century A.D., whereas we have New Testament documents that go back with, or fragments that go back within at least a generation of the time in which they were written. There's one uh, uh, fragment from the Gospel of John that's dated about uh, 110 to 115 A.D., which is within 20 years, probably 25, 20 to 25 years of the writing of the Gospel of John. So it's remarkable how much we have of the Bible. In fact, Bernard Ram, another noted scholar who's written much in this area, has stated regarding the Old Testament that Jews preserved it as no other manuscript has ever been preserved. With their Masora and its Parva Magna and Finalis, that's the, the comments, writings in the, on the um, Hebrew letters, they kept tabs on every letter, syllable, word, and paragraph. They counted everything. When, when the Jews made a copy of the Old Testament, it was, it was almost a Xerox copy by hand. They had special classes of men within their culture, he writes, whose sole duty was to preserve and transmit these documents with practical, practically perfect fidelity, scribes, lawyers, Masoretes. Whoever counted the letters and syllables of Plato or Aristotle, uh, Cicero or Seneca, a thousand times over the death knell of the Bible has been sounded, the funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone and committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. No other book has been so chopped, knived, sifted, scrutinized, and vilified. What book on philosophy or religion or psychology or belle lettres, classical or modern times, has been subject to such a mass attack as the Bible, with such venom and skepticism, with such thoroughness and erudition? Upon every chapter, line, and tenet, the Bible is still loved by millions, read by millions, and studied by millions. We're more certain today of the accuracy of the Bible written over 2,000 years ago than we are of the text of Shakespeare written only 400 years ago. Scholars still debate what Shakespeare wrote or might have written, yet we're more certain of the Bible. In fact, the noted French skeptic and pagan writer Voltaire, who died in 1778, declared that within 100 years of his lifetime, Christianity would be swept from existence and passed into history. Yet the irony of history is that within 50 years of his death, the Geneva Bible Society was using his house to print and distribute thousands of Bibles every year. God has a great sense of humor. Point number nine. The Bible is unique in the way it presents its heroes. 
they're described with all of their sins and all of their flaws. The Bible doesn't, God does not just skip over their sinfulness. We're told of Noah's sin of drunkenness. We're told of the sins of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The description of the spirituality of the Jews is rarely flattering, yet they're God's chosen people. David's adultery with Bathsheba is described, his conspiracy to murder Uriah, her husband, and to cover up the murder and the adultery is made clear. In the Gospels, we see the faults, the failures, the obtuseness of the apostles. And then we see the flaws in the early churches. As we look at the seven letters to Revelation, as we studied Corinthians, we see that the, the, these early Christians are not presented as wonderful people who had it all together, but as flawed, failing Christians, just as we are too much of the time. When we look at all of the evidence about the Bible, we conclude that it is unique in history. In fact, Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Seminary, stated... Quote, the Bible is not such a book a man would write if he could, or could write if he would. This is not the kind of a book that people, man, would write about God. But this is the contention of religious liberalism, 19th century, what we call 19th century religious liberalism, or the skepticism that developed beginning in the 1700s that the Bible was a record of man's experiences with, quote, God or with spirituality rather than an objective revelation from God to man. And so this is the problem that we face today continuously is the attack dogs of liberal theology and the rationalistic left. And in our generation, we are no less under attack than previous generations. In fact, as we as a culture drift further and further away from our biblical Judeo-Christian roots, the attacks become stronger and stronger. In fact, if you even in watching so-called religious shows on, on uh, television, the so-called documentaries that are supposed to give us the truth behind the Bible... What you discover is that if you know what's going on and are familiar with the facts, that they are so skewed in a way against the Bible and the veracity of the Bible that they undermine faith in the Bible. When you pick up almost any school textbook, public school, college, university textbook on history, sociology, psychology, biology, or you listen to many of the so-called intellectuals from the liberal theology and the rationalistic left, what you discover is that they reject almost everything that's in the Bible. They reject a creation. According to them, there was no universal flood. There may have been some minor local flood in the Mesopotamian area. They reject the existence of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were just... Figures made up to substantiate some sort of background for Israel. They reject the existence of Moses, uh, the Exodus. That did not happen. They reject the reality of a meeting with God at Mount Sinai. Therefore, they reject the divine origin of the Mosaic Law. They deny miracles. 
They deny the virgin birth, and they deny resurrection. And yet they stand in the pulpits of the, of the churches in the land. They teach at the liberal seminaries such as Harvard Divinity School, Yale Divinity School, and many other liberal seminaries in the nation, and claim to speak for Christians and teach about Christianity. And yet they deny the historical validity of any of these things. Makes me remember the definition I heard once of an intellectual. An intellectual is someone who is so educated they'll believe almost anything that uh, nobody else will believe. See, what happens is that when, the, when liberal theologians, liberal Christians, face the Bible, they come to the text with loaded dice. And the loaded dice are their presuppositions. Now, a presupposition is, is merely an assumption, a deeply, profoundly held assumption that is often not even brought out into the open light of day for critical evaluation. It is something that is so deeply and profoundly held within their intellectual system that they never, ever think about questioning its validity. Uh, presupposition is a, uh, I, I guess, the best illustration I heard from a seminary professor was a story of a man who believed that, um, uh, that he was dead. He was absolutely convinced that he was dead and that he was just walking around dead. So this, this psychiatrist that he was sent to uh, began to work with him and uh, decided on a course of action that he would demonstrate to the man that, um, that he was really alive. So he thought about it and he thought about it. And he, the course of action that he came up with was to... Uh, convinced the man uh, that dead things don't bleed. So he began to, they would talk about it, they would go to the laboratory, they would uh, uh, poke or prick a living uh, mouse or living animal, and it would bleed. And uh, then they would prick a dead rat or mouse, and it would not bleed. And this went on for some time until the man was convinced that dead things would not bleed. Then the Psychiatrist took out a pen and poked the guy in the arm. He started to bleed, and the man looked down and went, Wow, how about that? Dead men bleed after all. <laughs> See, this is the liberal mindset. They're so convinced of certain truths that this creates a grid through which they interpret all of the data. What are these presuppositions? Well, I've got two outline for you. The first presupposition that they hold is that God cannot speak to man. God cannot communicate to man. This is their presupposition. It can't happen. They have, if you want to summarize the whole thing, they have an anti-supernatural bias. They don't believe there is anything that exists beyond the natural phenomena that's, that is present to the human senses. So they approach, all when they come to the Bible, if their presupposition is that God can't speak to man, then by definition, the Bible can't be what it claims to be, which is revelation from God. And so they will automatically evaluate all of the evidence in some sort of naturalistic framework. The second presupposition is that they believe that nothing in the Bible is acceptable or can be believed without first corroborating it from history or archaeology. In other words, if we can't find independently of the Bible, 
a reference in archaeology or history to Abraham, then he must not have existed. If we can't find independent corroboration that David existed, then he must not have existed. These must therefore just be fables or myths or legends that were generated by the Jews. Now that may sound rather odd to some of you that someone would hold a position like that. So I have a couple of quotes from liberal theologians. These are men highly respected in their fields. A German scholar, A. Cunin, writes, the familiar, quote, the familiar intercourse of the divinity with the patriarchs constitutes for me one of the determining considerations against the historical character of the, of the narratives. See, what he's saying is if it's real history, you couldn't have God talking to men. What's his presupposition? God can't do that. So when he reads it, he's already front-loaded the issue. He's loaded the dice, and it can't happen. So therefore, it can't be true. It can't be giving uh, historical fact. Langdon Gilkey at the University of Chicago writes concerning the Exodus and Sinai account in the Scripture, quote, The acts the Hebrews believed God might have done, and the words he might have said had he done and said them. But, of course, we recognize that we did not. See the elitist, arrogant attitude here? We're so smart. You know, 3,500 years later, we know more than they did. We can look at what we have in archaeology and history, and, and we can judge the situation better than they did. And we know God can't speak to man, so therefore, there were just a bunch of stupid, uh, deceived individuals. Rudolf Bultmann was one of the, in the eyes of the world, one of the great New Testament scholars in the early to mid-19th century. You'll find articles by him in numerous, numerous uh, theologies, but he was one of the leading liberal uh, theologians. I doubt that he was even a believer. And he wrote, quote, The historical method includes the presupposition that history is a unity in the sense of a closed continuum of effect. See, he, he just admits it right up front. We have a presupposition that history is a closed system. See, God can't get in. History is closed. God can't speak. He can't get inside. History is a closed continuum of effect. This closedness means that the continuum of historical happenings, he writes, cannot be rent by the interference of supernatural, transcendent powers, and that therefore there is no, quote, miracle in this sense of the word. See, he just openly and honestly admits it. He, he's not going to believe it because his assumption is that it can't happen. He goes on to say in another book, quote, a historical fact which involves a resurrection from the dead is utterly inconceivable. See, it, it, so what if the tomb is empty? That doesn't mean Jesus rose from the dead, because that can't happen. See, his presupposition is that human empiricism and rationalism is such that that gives us truth, and therefore we have to evaluate everything on the basis of, of limited human experience and uh, finite reason. One scholar even argues that Christ did not exist at all, because, quote, no first century inscription mentions him, no object or building has survived which has a specific link to him. Of course, we'll see that that's not true, at least the latter part of that. But um, 
and even the no first century scripture, he's mentioned by Josephus, and he's mentioned by at least 15 other uh, first century writers, that non-biblical writers. But when liberal th- scholarship rejects presuppositionally the idea that God can act in human history or communicate to men, or that men can know beyond any doubt that God exists, well, it shapes and distorts their interpretation of the data. As Scripture says in Romans 1, they are suppressing the truth by means of unrighteousness. Now, this is important to understand because if you're talking to someone who has this presupposition, let me graph this out on a, an argument, just like a legal argument that's being presented in a court, is always built on certain assumptions. Okay, so down here you have your assumptions or your presuppositions. Now, our presupposition is that it's possible that God can communicate to man. Their presupposition is it's impossible. Before you look at any of the evidence, before you talk about anything, their presupposition is God can't do it. It's impossible. It is, by definition, impossible. Well, if you grant their presupposition, then any argument that they construct on top of that, if it's logically consistent with the presupposition, is going to be consistent. See, you can't, if you're talking over here as a believer, and you've got your argument built on our presupposition that God can speak to man, and you're talking to an unbeliever over here whose presupposition is that God can't speak to man, and you try to have a discussion up at this level talking about one historical fact versus another historical fact, it's just going to be doomed to frustration and failure because... If you grant the other person's presupposition, then everything else follows. The assault has to come at this level. This is what is known as presuppositional apologetics. You have to attack a person at their presuppositions, not in terms of the interpretation of the data, because the presuppositions determine the interpretation of the data. Now, this brings up a very interesting conundrum for us. How do we then prove the reliability, the trustworthiness of the Bible. Well, we have to understand what we mean by the word prove. We're not going to prove it in the sense that you can go into a laboratory and you can take a couple of hydrogen molecules and a couple of oxygen molecules and combine them and come up with H2O and produce water. That is a, that is a proof. It is a scientific demonstration. You could constru- also construct certain geometrical uh, proofs. Uh, those of you who suffered through... Uh, High school geometry uh, may not remember that too well, but the same thing happens with, with uh, constructing a geometric proof is you have certain assumptions. You remember learning those assumptions in, uh, in, in geometry? Well, what if those assumptions are challenged? For example, you can have a Euclidean ge- geometry, but since uh, Euclid in the last hundred years have developed other geometrical systems that would reject the assumption that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. What if it's we're living on a sphere? How does that affect uh, the straight line assumption? So uh, how do you go about proving the Bible? Furthermore, when you talk about proof of anything, you have to appeal to a higher authority, don't you? You have to say that, okay, if I'm going to prove that something is true, I have to appeal to a higher law or a higher authority or something in order to evaluate this particular claim. Well, let's ask the question. What 
authority? What principle? What universal law is higher than God? If you're starting off with the presupposition of a believer as, as holding to the fact that God is the creator of everything, that there are no universal laws, there are no laws of logic, there are no laws of physics, there are no natural laws that exist apart from their origin in God, then you can't appeal to history or to a natural law or to logic as your ultimate authority. Because then what you're doing is you're saying that, that you're elevating logic, natural law, science, history. You're elevating that to some level of an absolute that is such that it can evaluate both God and man. So you have to be careful how you construct this argument. Because, see, if you're looking at history as an ultimate and there are many apologists who do this um, in, their, in terms of their methodology. If you look at history as your ultimate determiner of truth, then you're talking with Joe Unbeliever, and you say, if I can prove to you that the tomb is empty, you don't believe Christ is God because he rose from the dead. And so you prove that the tomb is empty, and like many liberal the- theologians come along and say, well, so what? It doesn't mean anything just means there was a historical aberration. That doesn't prove that Jesus existed. Why? What's the problem here? The problem is that presuppositionally, he is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. The problem isn't a historical problem. The problem isn't a, a logical problem. A problem isn't, the, the problem isn't an, an understanding of, of natural law. Whatever you go to, science, history, logic, whatever, that's not the issue. See, the problem with the unbeliever is a spiritual rejection of truth. The unbeliever doesn't believe God exists because he doesn't want to believe God exists. And therefore, he is going to construct a worldview, he's going to construct a rationale to reject the veracity of the Bible because he doesn't want to believe that the Bible can possibly be true. So we can't prove the Bible in that sense. However, what we can do is recognize the fact that the Bible makes certain claims. And we can evaluate those claims. And in the area uh, where there is known reality, we can show that, uh, that where the Bible speaks about certain things, that it is always spoken truly. So therefore, in the areas that are verifiable and testable, we know that the Bible is true. This confirms that when the Bible speaks about that which we can't perceive, that we can't see with our senses or reason to uh, through rationalism, that the Bible must also be true in those areas. So we're not proving the Bible by history or archaeology or something else. We are simply demonstrating that history, archaeology, uh, internal evidence from the scriptures themselves demonstrate that there is tremendous consistency with the claim of the Bible to be the uniquely inspired Word of God. This methodology was used by Jesus during his ministry. For example, when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
In other words, when Jesus is saying is when I talk about things that you can easily confirm through your own experience, through your own history, through your own observation, if you don't believe that, now how will I how would you believe me if I don't tell if I tell you about heavenly things? See, the problem was a rejection of truth presuppositionally as a fallen creature, as a uh, he, even though Nicodemus was religious. He was still negative to truth. A lot of religious people don't want to believe in the truth of the Bible. They've created their own religion. What Jesus is saying is if I've told you about earthly things, i.e., if I've told you about the history of Sodom and Gomorrah, if I've told you about the history of the Tower of Babel, if I've told you about different cultures and different peoples that lived in the ancient world, and you reject that, if I've told you about the existence of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Moses, and you reject that, then how will you believe what I teach you about eternal spiritual truth? See, this is a problem with the unbeliever. They reject the historical basis for Scripture. And then in liberalism, it doesn't even have to have a historical basis because what matters is what you believe, not history. But see, the Bible, like any good, truthful religious system would, claims to be grounded in the reality of historical veracity. In other words, if it's not, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead like the Bible claims, this is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, there is no Christianity. If Christianity isn't historically true as it claims to be, then it's not true at all. You have to throw everything out. Another example where Jesus makes it clear that we can uh, at least verify or confirm through empiricism and rationalism uh, certain things and that there's a transfer of credibility from things that are seen to things that are unseen, occurs when he heals the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Uh, he's talking to the, about the disciples. He says, when Jesus saw their faith, that is, the, the, the family of the disciples, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. See, see presuppositionally, they have rejected the claim that Jesus is God. So, because their presupposition is he can't be the Messiah, he can't be God, therefore they are refusing to believe that he's done what is before him, which is to forgive his sins. And so they say, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, Jesus has said his sins are forgiven. That is a spiritual truth, something that's happened in the non-rational, non-empirical realm. And so then what happens? Then Jesus heals him. Jesus heals the man physically. And the point is that, that Jesus was making is that only God could forgive sins, but then only God could, could heal. Now, what's easier, to heal the guy or to just simply say your sins are forgiven? Well, it's real easy to just make the statement your sins are forgiven. But by healing the, the man who was paralyzed, Jesus demonstrates that he is able to do and perform in the physical realm what only God can do. And therefore, the natural conclusion is that if he can do what only God can, can do physically, then he can do only what God can do in the spiritual realm. Well, one of the ways in which we can look at the Bible to gain some insight into its validity and its veracity is to look at various, uh, various claims that are made historically. Uh, in the Bible, and to see if there is documentation, corroboration, validation through either history or archaeology. Now, we have to be careful. 
when we look at the relationship of archaeology and the Bible, because modern man often makes a makes a, a flawed case here. Their presupposition is that if something can't be demonstrated outside of the Bible, then you don't accept the Bible to be true. However, biblically, we must accept the Bible to be true, uh, and we must recognize that it's from that it is from God, and therefore it is true. Historically, because of the presupposition of liberalism, they have assumed that the Bible is is wrong unless it's proved to be right. Gee, doesn't that violate basic assumptions? You know, you're innocent until proven guilty. So for the liberal, the Bible is guilty until proven innocent. This has led to many false claims uh, that have uh, been foisted on the public. Uh, because archaeology has failed or has not come up with a state uh, with evidence that David existed, perhaps, or that Moses existed, or, or because the knowledge of archaeology was limited at the time, certain scholars have jumped to conclusions, and then those conclusions become calcified, they become hardened, and they become accepted by, quote, scholarship, and then even when the underlying uh, archaeological assumption is proved false, those theological conclusions are still taught uh, in the classroom. So we have to begin by understanding some things about what archaeology is, what it can do, and what it can't do. First of all, we have to realize that archaeology is an inexact science. It's an inexact science. You can only do limited things with archaeology. You can't prove the Bible. You can't disprove the Bible through archaeology because archaeology is dealing with limited historical evidence. It's just left over in the rocks and in the debris of history. So all, you can get, all you're ever going to be able to do with archaeology is simply uh, confirm certain certain things you can just get a we just get a limited picture of the ancient world from the limited uh, uh, things that have survived so therefore because it's an inexact science it's limited in what it can demonstrate in the preface to the new international dictionary of biblical theology we read that the purpose of biblical archaeology is to recover material remains of man's past, not to prove the accuracy or the historicity of the Bible. This is exactly true. This is an excellent comment. The accuracy of the historicity of the Bible. Nevertheless, it's important to note that Near Eastern archaeology has demonstrated the historical and geographical reliability of the Bible in many important areas. By clarifying the objectivity and factual accuracy of biblical where did that come from? Biblical writers, biblical authors. Archaeology also helps correct the view that the Bible is avowedly partisan and subjective. It is now known, for instance, that along with the Hittites, Hebrew scribes were the best historians in the entire ancient Near East, despite contrary propaganda that emerged from Assyria, Egypt, and elsewhere. You see, archaeology doesn't necessarily prove the Bible by giving extra-biblical data on certain individuals, characters, or events. But what we discover in archaeology is that when the Bible gives us a picture of, let's say, the patriarchs and their lifestyle and what was going on 
in the time period in which the Bible claims it was written, or those events took place around 2000 B.C., that in archaeology, when we uncover the remains of cultures at that time, there is, there's a one-to-one correspondence. In other words, the picture that the Bible presents of life at that time is confirmed historically at that time. There's not a, a contradiction. Another one, one prime example of the, the flaw that I spoke about was something that occurred in the early 19th century, around the 1830s and 1840s. There were two men, Julius Wellhausen and Wilhelm Graf, who set forth a theory called the documentary hypothesis. See, their presupposition was that God couldn't reveal himself to man. So therefore, the Bible must be a product of human, uh, human effort and human uh, works, and they argued that Moses could not possibly have written the Pentateuch, as, it, as the Bible claims, because no one was writing at that time, or if there were, it was restricted to just a few people, but most people were uh, unable to read, and most people could not write. However, uh, by the late 1800s, there was a discovery of the uh, black steely. Let me see here. I have a picture of it out of order here. Let me go through. Ah. There it is. Got the slide out of order. The black steely, which has a coat of Hammurabi on it. And this was dated to about 1700 B.C. Predates Moses. You have writing. You have a detailed law code. And other archaeological discoveries demonstrated that this whole documentary hypothesis was built on false assumptions. However, as late as 1970, when I was in university, I had a Ph.D. historian, an excellent scholar, well-respected man, one of my favorite professors in college, had uh, many courses with him. But he taught the documentary hypothesis as fact in my Western Civilization course, despite the fact that uh, archaeological evidence, historical evidence has shown that every assumption that was made by Wellhausen in the 1830s and 1840s has dem- was demonstrated to be false. See, once these theories become uh, constructed, they become hardened and accepted, and, and they, they have a life of their own despite the, um, uh, their, their condemnation. So... Go back to where we were. All right. And when we look at Old Testament archaeology, we have to understand what its basic purpose is, and that is just to get a picture of life in the past. It can't necessarily prove or disprove the Bible, although there are certainly times when it does confirm what the Bible says. Nelson Gluck, who was one of the foremost biblical archaeologists and uh, in the middle 19th century, stated, quote, All that I have ever said is that in all of my archaeological investigation, I have never found one artifact of antiquity that contradicts any statement of the Word of God. So what we see is that archaeology confirms the picture we have in the Bible, but it can't, quote, prove the Bible. Let's look at some examples that we have from Old Testament archaeology. In regarding creation, in the excavation of Nineveh in the early 20th century, 
They discovered the library of King Ashurbanipal of Assyria. His dates were 668 to 626 B.C., so roughly 100, 150 years before the Jews went out under the fifth cycle of discipline in 586 B.C. And in his library, they found a set of seven tablets called the Creation Epic. And in that particular creation story, it listed six days of creation and one day of rest. Then, of course, we also have in the same library the Babylonian creation epic, which we have studied in our Genesis series, the Enuma Elish, which was their story about how the gods with Tiamat and Marduk um, and Apsu were these this watery chaos that generated out of itself all of the universe. Uh, but what we see in here is is a understanding of the culture, the framework of in which Genesis was written, that even though the liberals claimed that Genesis was just a a revision of this uh, these Babylonian creation epics, it's clear when you read and we we did this in Genesis, when you compare those cre- creation stories of the pagan cultures with the Bible, that the Bible could not have come from them. In other words, what the Bible presents is a very strict, sophisticated view of creation, and that as rebellious man uh, modified that, you have the the uh, uh, deterioration of the story, and it devolves into these pagan myths. In fact, one writer comments, quote, All who su- suspect or suggest a borrowing by the Hebrews that is, that that the Jews borrowed from the pagan myths, are compelled to admit large-scale revision, alteration, and reinterpretation in a fashion which cannot be substantiated for any other composition from the ancient Near East or in any other Hebrew writing. This is a quote from uh, scholar A.R. Millard, who is a well-known Old Testament scholar. His point is that to say that the Bible came from those things would suggest such a whole-scale revision. I mean, they changed the interpretation. So much has changed that you would have to be able to demonstrate other, from other cultures this kind of revision. And there's no evidence of that. I mean, they don't just take a story. I mean, it, they just don't take the story of the Enuma Elish and change the names to protect the innocent. It's a... It's a 90, if there were a revision, it would be a 99.9% revision. Well, that's just absurd. In fact, it's really the other way around. The Enuma Elish is this deterioration from the true story. You see the same kind of example in the Gilgamesh epic, which is the Babylonian flood story. In the Gilgamesh epic, you have the story of a, of a flood involving Utnapishtim, who's the Babylonian Noah. He survives in an ark. To discover when the water's gone, he sends out a dove, a swallow, and a raven. Not just a dove and a raven is a biblical account. But what we see is that certain elements are just like the Bible. But obviously the story's been embellished and changed over the years. Whereas when you look at the scriptural stories, they're crisp, they're precise, they don't have this embellishment, they don't have these unbelievable, incredulous, uh, supernatural type things going on uh, beyond as you do by comparison with these other other stories. Another archaeological discovery has been the ziggurats in, ba- in the area of ancient Babylon. 
These were later towers, uh, towers that were built later than the Tower of Babel, but built on the same model. And here we have a an artist's depiction of what the Tower of Babel looked like based on the discoveries of these uh, ancient ziggurats that archaeology has uncovered. And here we have a model. I don't know how clearly you can see that. I tried to get the highest resolution I could off the Internet, but obviously that doesn't project very well. Uh, a model, clay model of a, of a ziggurat. It's a step pyramid that goes up, and it was unfinished. Now, we know what these look like. For example, let's go back to the previous picture. We know what it, what it looked like based on certain evidence that we have archaeologically. What's interesting, just to show you how this affects modern man, is that a few years ago they built the European Union Parliament Building in Strasbourg. And it is intentionally modeled after the Tower of Babel, even to the point of being an unfinished Tower. Here's a picture. See, this is the, this is the main building down here, going across here, and in the back you see the tower. But I want you to notice, see, on this side it's unfinished, and we have another picture here to show you. Here's a, the back side. See, it, it it's it's built like that ziggurat, except it's unfinished. It's only partially completed. Here's another shot of that same building. The architect intentionally, self-consciously built it. And what this reveals is, as, we'll get in the, as we go through the, our st- study in the next couple of weeks, we'll see prophecies that are confirmed in the Bible, that even though rebellious pagan man is exemplified in the European Union, wants to reject the Bible, they can't help but fulfill biblical prophecy. Here there is a direct linkage in the architecture of the European Union back to the Tower of Babel. There they're trying to finish what man started back at the Tower of Babel. Uh, they reject all the Bible and everything is just simply myth, but they just can't help fulfilling biblical prophecy. Well, I have a number of other things we want to cover regarding archaeology in the Old Testament, and we won't have time to finish that today. We'll come back and start with archaeology in the Old Testament and in the New Testament next time as we continue our study showing how uh, history and archaeology clearly confirms the kinds of things that are taught in the Bible. And in some remarkable ways, some recent discoveries have clearly confirmed the existence of, of David and others in the Scripture. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning to uh, gain a greater sense of its uh, veracity, its truthfulness, its reliability. Father, we thank you for the confirming evidences that we have in history and archaeology so that Christian, our, our belief is not something that is based on a parking of our brain in neutral, but where we can hold our heads up high intellectually knowing that, that the Bible is what it claims to be and there's clear evidence that corroborates validates the claims of Scripture. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do to have eternal life is to put your faith alone in Christ alone, to trust that He died on the cross for your sins, to rely upon Him exclusively. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we do thank you for the things that we have learned today. 
May we be challenged by them and our faith strengthened. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.